Our Father, we take great comfort in singing those words uh, that in Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ, you as our Savior and you, Holy Spirit, who unites us to Christ, will never leave us. Our Lord, we will be with you to the end because of your saving work and the permanence, the eternal nature of our union with you. And so we take great comfort in, in those truths, and we take great comfort in, in amazement in the fact that not only can we sing it, but your word declares to us that we are your friends. We are those you've brought into intimate counsel, into intimate relationship with you. And in this we rejoice, in this we stand amazed. And yet, at the same time, help us to pursue this, for we know even as we'll be addressed uh, by Solomon in Ecclesiastes, in part this morning, that we are a people who live in community. We are a people who need companionship. We are a people who are not meant to travel this world alone and accomplish your purposes by ourselves, but in unity with your people and those who not only bear your image, but bear the spirit of Christ. And so teach us, our God. Conform us and shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, we're going to attempt to look at the whole chapter this morning. Uh, that means I'll have to do a little bit of editing because I have far too much here um, to finish in the next, you know, 45 or 50 minutes or so. But I do want to try to get through all 16 verses as we continue to look through this uh, essentially a, a meditation of Solomon by inspiration of the Holy Spirit recorded for us, his meditation on a world that cannot of itself give to us what our heart desires, which is meaning. And so he is one who takes us really into the abyss of a world under the condition of sins. And he, he kind of, as has been said before, he kind of grabs us by the collar and he makes us look at this fact uh, for what it is. That the world by itself is a place that is corrupt. It is a place that is temporary. Our place in it is passing and fleeting and nothing we accomplish is of ultimate purpose. And he does this to provide the backdrop to point us to how we are to live wisely in this world, contented in God's provisions, how we are to ultimately uh, look at this world and all of its corruption and futility and be moved to consider the world that is to come, namely the one who's purchased that world for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the big scope of Scripture. Solomon, of course, did not have all of that in mind, but that is a part of its place in the canon to remind us of the bigger picture of God fulfilling his promise. And the fact that only God is the one who can fulfill, fulfill that promise. God is the only one who can bring about what our souls need and what we most desire. And so in that mission in chapter 4, we're going to be brought again to look at the reality of Oppression. He introduced that idea back in chapter 3. Here he unfolds it a bit more, and we are certainly no strangers to the reality of oppression in this world, to the way that power has a tendency to push down in order that it may rise higher and higher in the heart of those who seek success at whatever cost. 
And so this morning, however, we're going to look at it in this way. In, in the midst of that darkness, he also gives us, as he often does, these glimmers of hope, glimmers of an answer, glimmers of wisdom, namely that contentment and community are what stand in opposition to oppression, oppression. And he's going to do that through a variety of examples that show the evil of oppression and the foolishness of pursuing power at the expense of contentment and community. And he's going to make us see that righteous contentment and true community are the antidote to that oppression. Now, there's three general points that we'll go through as we or look at as we go along. One, that oppression produces misery. Number two, that righteous contentment destroys oppression. And number three, that righteous community destroys oppression. So with all that, let's read chapter four. We'll read the whole thing. It's only 16 verses. And then we'll uh, look at it more closely. Beginning in verse one. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. And then I looked again at vanity under the sun. And there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, Yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A poor, wise lad is better than an old, foolish king with, who no longer knows how to receive instruction, for he has come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom." And I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after the wind. And here then Solomon lays out for us the conflict and the foolishness The conflict between those who have power and those who seek power and the emptiness that it produces and those who are oppressed and those who are find themselves at the losing end of that battle for power and have to endure such ill treatment in this world. And yet, in the midst of that, again, he gives us wisdom. He gives us perspective. So let's begin back at verse 1 and notice first the, the theme essentially Namely, that oppression produces misery. It's, it's in, in one sense, introduces the theme and gives us the, the context. 
Oppression produces misery. Look at verse one. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. Clearly, oppression here is the main idea. He repeats that word three times in the verse. The idea of oppression, the oppressor, and those who are oppressed. That's the main idea. What does he mean by oppressed? Well, if we were to get a broad idea of what oppression is, one, I think I'll borrow this, said the seeking after profit without regard to the nature, the needs, and the rights of other people. So what is oppression? Oppression is what is suffered when somebody is seeking their own success at whatever cost and without regard to other people. That can come in politics. It can come culturally, socially. It can come with war, acts of violence. There's a variety of ways that that can work out. As a matter of fact, he's already introduced, as I mentioned, one example of a kind of oppression that we just mentioned last week in verse 16 of chapter 3. It is the, the oppression that comes when wickedness resides in the place of justice, in the law courts, in the courts, in this case of God's people, but in the courts where righteousness should be upheld, there's wickedness, he says. Where there should be justice, there is wickedness. That is a kind of oppression. There he looks at it specifically again in the courts. Here he broadens it out to the wider experience of injustice and oppression as life, as he says, under the sun. Life under the sun. So in other words, broadly. Now, what seems to be at first glance a kind of conflict here is, is that isn't Solomon a righteous king? And, and indeed, he was overall a righteous king. He certainly morally failed in his own life and crashed and burned at the end. But he was a righteous king. And so what would seem to be uh, at odds with that is how could a righteous king observe without, without giving prescription here an answer for this kind of injustice, this kind of oppression. And Solomon isn't giving a prescription here because he's simply making an observation. Remember, the context here is his observation of how meaning cannot be found in the world. An answer or any kind of ultimate answer cannot be found among the sons of men or under the sun in his common refrain. He's acknowledging that here, even under a righteous kingship, Injustice exists. It's just part of the human experience. He's, this is a theme throughout Scripture. He's mentioned this before, even in the book of Proverbs. Let me just give you a couple of examples. He says in Proverbs 13:1, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. In Proverbs 22:16, He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Those are prescriptions in a sense of saying this is the way of foolishness. Don't walk into it. It has consequences, poverty, opposition to God. But here he's merely observing this fact again and saying that oppression exists. Oppression exists. It's a part of the human condition. It's a part of living in a world under the condition of sin in a world full of men who are beast, as he said in chapter 3. And of course, this is highlighted by the fact or the, the horror of this or the, the incongruity of this among the people of God because it is directly against the will of God. What was very clear, first of all, by the law of God written on the heart, but also by the law of God as given, in, given by covenant to his people, is that just the opposite of oppression 
Uh, as members of the covenant community, righteousness was worked out in care and love for a neighbor. Leviticus 19.13, let me just give you some examples. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. That was a key tenet throughout the Mosaic law, of course. Deuteronomy 24.14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. And in both of those cases, by withholding wages from them, withholding from them what is their due, what they may have need of. A more comprehensive Example is in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. He says this, the prophet does, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger, the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. In other words, it's clearly God expected his people not to oppress, but to serve one another. I mentioned it earlier that Solomon, as a righteous king, would have pursued these things. Solomon wrote Psalm 72, and he says this, speaking of that righteous king, he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So that's what a righteous king desires. That's what God desires from his people. But again, the reality is, as I looked again at all of the acts of men under the sun, he notes that nonetheless, there is oppression. There is evil. There is hardship. And his language here against that backdrop of what should be and what is, is intensely emotive. It's it's emotional. Uh, It has a a kind of severity to it, a depth. Look at what he says. I saw their tears. They had no one to comfort them. Twice he repeats that. They had no one to comfort them. They are in a state of helplessness because these were the powerless against the powerful. They had no recourse, as it were, no way to answer the oppression, no way to resist, no way to stand against it. And it brought to them a great sadness and it brought to them tears and pain. And there is a sense here, as as he will as throughout this passage, in which he's emphasizing the isolation of the one who both oppresses and stands outside of the will of God. Now, the world has no shortage of examples of this. We don't need to, we could comb through the examples of the Old Testament, which would largely do, again, with charging usury against the rich for their own people, putting them further and further into oppression and into their own service mistreating slaves, mistreating the weak, taking advantage of strangers, and so on it goes. We certainly have no shortage of examples of this kind of oppression in our own world. One even only needs to have a cursory knowledge of history or even of watching the news and what's going on in our own times. There's no end against examples of the crimes against humanity. People oppressed by war, by famine, by genocide... In our own time, which it seems to be easily forgotten, we can remember just not... It's some who are still alive of this generation are just dying of the Holocaust, which killed six million Jews. And there were millions others killed through starvation in Russia. There were millions killed in Poland who were oppressed and so on. I did just a quick search of genocides, of recent genocides, and counted there were examples of over 70... Or examples of over 70 acts of genocide 
just within the 19th and the 20th century that has claimed tens of millions of lives. We see it in our own news. It's happening today. This doesn't even include the kind of oppression against the weak of our own culture and society and the world, the oppression of children caught and adopted into slave labor or the sex slave business and trade. According to one statistics in 2019, there were 4 million women caught in sex trafficking, 100, or excuse me, 1 million of which were children. And again, these kind of lists of abuses could go on and on. That's what Solomon is talking about. He's saying he's looking at this world. He's looking even within the covenant people of Israel. He's looking at the world at large, and he says, it's hard. There's evil under the sun. There's evil among the sons of men. Truly, they are, they are a beast. And so what does he say in verse 2? What is his answer? He says, so I congratulated the dead who were already dead more than the living, who were still living. Better than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. You know, suffering can cause this kind of despair. I'm going to turn this. Job felt this as he was suffering, suffering the loss of his family, suffering the loss of his wealth, suffering the fact that it felt as though God's hand was against him. He despaired of life. He despaired of the day that he was born. He says he wishes he was born a stillborn. That's what... He, Solomon is, is communicating here. Why does he say this? Because the dead at least don't have to experience or witness suffering anymore. And even better is the unborn who never even had to taste the evils of this world and the evils of oppression. And it's not only those who are just generally under oppression in the world, but even the righteous particularly feel this kind of oppression from the wicked, this kind of loneliness, this kind of evil against them. Psalm 142, verse 4, communicates this psalm. I look to the right, look and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape. No one cares for my soul. This is one who felt the oppression of the wicked who were attacking the righteous. And no one was there to defend him. No one there was there to stand for him. No one was there to protect him. No one was there as an answer for his misery. So this is the reality of the world. This is a testimony of Solomon against the kind of evils that exist in this world. It's, again, a testimony to the fallenness of man. And and Solomon wants us to feel it. He wants us to, to experience it in the sense of looking at it through his eyes, feeling it through his heart. Experiencing it, experiencing it through his observation. And again, to show that we can't look to this world to find ultimate meaning, ultimate justice, or those kind of things. But again, that's how it provides the backdrop. And even though he doesn't immediately get here in this passage, although he alluded to this before in verse 17 of chapter 3, where he says there's injustice, but wait and hold on because justice will be met in the end when God returns and when God establishes justice and when which he uh, applies it rightly and with equity to the righteous and to the wicked. And so he's a backdrop. So here he's looking again. He wants us to feel what the world is through natural eyes, but through the eyes of faith. God is not uncaring about the plight of those who are oppressed. God is not lacking in compassion. The same, the same psalms that tell us of the suffering of those who are oppressed also tells us of God's compassion for them. 
In Psalm 68, 5, God is a fatherless of the fatherless and a judge for the widow is God in his holy habitation. Verse 6, he, God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity and only the rebellious will dwell in a parched land. God has not forgotten them. God has not forgotten the oppressed in that his people are meant to relieve the oppressor, the king, as we already mentioned uh, in Psalm 72. Even for the New Testament, James says, what is pure and undefiled religion? That we care for the orphan and the widow. In other words, the weak that are among us. But the reality is, though God cares, go God meets with compassion those who are oppressed. Oppression is a part of this world and it brings misery. But... It should cause us to look to God, and we don't want to forget that in Solomon's words here. It causes, this, this is the reality, but it should cause us to look to the God who is compassionate. Remember, he's not writing this in isolation. He's writing this as a part of the, a member of the covenant community of God, the people of God. And we have something even greater. Remember when Christ came. What was the mark of his ministry? Why did Christ do his miracles? One, to show he was the Son of God. One, to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. One, to show that the inbreaking of the coming age had already happened among people and the presence of the Spirit was there. One, to show us the taste of the powers of the age and the glory to come. But also to show us God's heart that he is compassionate towards those who are oppressed. It says more than once as Christ was going in the, in, in the Gospels, that he looked and he said he had sorrow. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were downcast. They were those who were under oppression, spiritual oppression, the oppression of leaders who treated them and used them for their own gain. And he came to bring peace. He came to bring an answer. God is compassionate towards those who are oppressed. But here Solomon is seeing only the misery oppression brings, again, for the argument of futility. But he gives a sparkle of hope. And that's, let's turn to that. In verse 4, and we'll note secondly then, that righteous contentment destroys oppression. Righteous contentment destroys oppression. He says in verse 4, And I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. But here is the contentment. But one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Notice what he says first is that contentment is a destroyer of envy and envy is a part of what leads to oppression. He says here that I've seen every labor and every skill is the result of rivalry, is a result of envy, is a result of jealousy is the idea there. That a lot of the drive for success among men is, is infected with the desire to achieve some sense of superiority or power over the other. It's what he said in Proverbs 28, 22, that it's the evil eye that hastens after wealth. The evil eye that hastens after wealth. And again, this is yet another transgression of the law and the righteousness of his people. It's a transgression of the commandment to not covet. It's a transgression of the commandment to love our neighbors. We love ourselves. And it not only destroys others, it destroys the one who possesses this kind of, this kind of internal motivation. The love of power and possession leads to the ruin of the one who longs for them. And it cannot, be the, it cannot be the foundation of a stable society or a stable life. And yet it's what marks our world. One has said this, a sinful world is a world of selfishness. Men, instead of feeling themselves to be members of one great body, a part of humanity, 
each bound to each other in mutual helpfulness, live only to seek their own. Fortunately, that's the case uh, for most of our world. It, it is a corrupting desire, as I said. Let me just give you a few examples of this. We know these things. Probably says in Proverbs 15, 6, great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is in the income of the wicked. In other words, income gained or success gained, whatever is gained through wicked means is going to bring with it trouble. Trouble outside, trouble internally. And Proverbs 16.8, let me just read a few of these to you. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Why is better a little with righteousness? Because it comes with contentment. It comes with satisfaction. That great income, impressive to the world, is, uh, with injustice is going to bring trouble. 17.1, better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of striving or feasting. And strife, with strife. One more, Proverbs 28, 6. He says this. Just to give you a flavor here. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. I've seen every labor and every skill which is done, and it's the rivalry of a man and his neighbor. It exists and it kills the one who is infected by this disease. It consumes the oppressor. And it's an insidious motive, this motive of envy, and it's not limited merely to the pursuit of wealth or power. In fact, envy is a large part of the oppression that comes against the righteous. Really? Yeah, as a matter of fact, the first sin outside of eating the apple, disobeying, or the fruit, sorry, we don't know it was an apple. Could have been an apple. It's a piece of fruit. But anyway... Uh, was an act of murder, which was, in fact, itself the result of envy and jealousy. The, the, the hatred of one being above him. Remember, God accepted Abel's offer. He did not accept Cain's offer, uh, offering, and so Cain murdered him. Giving a commentary on that in Genesis 4, 1 John chapter 3, it says, we, this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Listen, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Therefore, my brethren, do not be surprised if the world hates you. They're jealous and envious, oppressive towards those deeds that are righteous and bring rebuke to their own. That's why you can remember even in the Gospels, why did they oppress Jesus, who was the greatest sufferer of oppression? It says, Pilate discerned, even unbelieving Pilate discerned in Mark 15, 10, that the leaders had delivered him over. Do you remember what he says? Because of envy. Because of envy, they were jealous of him. The crowds were flocking to him. He was humiliating them. He was exposing their ignorance and their hypocrisy. And they hated him for that. They had to get rid of him. He was a destruction to their kingdom. They wanted success. Why? They wanted success on the backs of others. They wanted success because of rivalry between men. This happens even among the religious among God. Remember what Jesus said. You cannot receive glory from God. Why? Because you receive glory from one another. John chapter 5. And as long as that's your motive, you're never going to truly attain to the glory of God. This kind of envy can happen in the church. 
It's certainly, well, there's one example, as you can remember with the disciples in, in, in the Luke, they give, he gives this account even around the table. So this would be in the same context of Jesus washing their feet. It says they were arguing which among them was going to be the greatest. Which among them was going to be the greatest. You'd say, yeah, but that was with the disciples. Uh, it got much better afterwards and the spirit came in the church and no one ever sins that way anymore. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's got a whole letter that he begins with this church. He says, you're still fleshly since there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Paulus, are you not mere men? What is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity. The point is this. Jealousy affects the heart of man. It can consume in the heart. You can maybe... any. Ask ourselves, is there anything that we're pursuing, not because of its means to serve or to glorify God, but because it'll put us above someone else at work, in the church, among friends? It infects our hearts is what it is. We, we need to be aware of it, the motive that for what we do. Now, I want to say it's important to note here that it's, this is not to say that the pursuit of excellence and success, and he's going to address that actually in the next verse, is evil in itself. We should pursue success. We should want to be fruitful. And get this, we should want to win. I don't know if it, I'm sure it irritates you as much as uh, it does me, everybody here, maybe. The idea of that, you know, we, everybody's a winner. We shouldn't have any losers in sport. No, you need a loser. It's the desire to win which motivates us. We should have that. If I were a coach of a team and they didn't want to win, uh, they shouldn't be on the team, Right? You want to win. You want to have success. He's not saying that that is wrong. What he is addressing is saying the wrong kind of motive that where the drive of success can lead to oppression to others. And again, that happens in the world. It happens in the church. But there is a proper motive for wanting success, for even wanting to attain positions in the world. That can have a proper motive as well. And that's the proper motive is this, when it's the end is not your own Selfish pursuits, but is ultimately to the glory of God and to be useful to his purposes. Then we should be successful. We should pursue that kind of excellence. And that kind of pursuit of excellence is wired into us as being made in the image of God. Again, this isn't an evil. The desire for excellence isn't what is evil. God created us to rule over creation. He created us to harness it, to master it, to use it to the best of his ability, to the best of the abilities that he gives us. But he designed us to do that as a whole, to do that together, to do that as one people. You can look at the world out and you say, with all of the resources, with all of the abilities, with all of the opportunities that we have in the world, we're all made in the image of God. God made from one, every tribe, nation, and tongue. We're all made in the image of God. We all bear his image. We all bear the same opportunity for fellowship with him. The same responsibility to glorify him. If we did that together, you can think of what a, what a wonderful, to borrow Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world this could be, right? What a wonderful world this would be. What a wonderful world it will be in heaven when this kind of envy and strife is taken out of the way. And there is a unity and there is a harmony. It's not to say that there aren't various degrees of skills and ability and those kind of things. Even in heaven, it is to say that there's no rivalry and jealousy in it. There's the ability to rejoice in the good that someone else does, the success in someone else. That's righteousness. That's how it should be. 
Where do our wars come from? Our wars are essentially this, absolute desire for absolute power. Where does oppression come from? The exercise of absolute power. And so that's, that's the cause of it. That's what he's recognizing here. Where does a lot of division come from within the church? This desire to, to not be outdone by another. Now, not our music department, especially because lately, uh, although others will start being incorporated in, but it's a husband and wife. So, yeah, um, you know, hopefully they're not trying to outdo each other with music. But, you know, the, the, the joke is that when Satan fell, he, he landed in the choir loft. And, uh, but that's not true for us. We don't have a choir loft, and it didn't, it didn't land. He didn't land in the St. Jocko. But the point is the same, is that it can, ha- it can happen in the church, that there is this tendency that we can have even in our own hearts. And what is the answer to that? Well, the answer to that is not laziness. Look at verse 6. And this is, the answer is to balance properly the contentment of work and rest. But he first notices the wrong way to handle that in verse 5. So the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. The connection with verse 4 is this, is that some can say they look at the world and they go, look at what the desire for success brings. It brings rivalry. It brings a dog-eat-dog kind of world. It brings misery to the one who pursues it. It brings oppression to those who are weak. And so what is the answer to that? Well, one wrong answer that he gives here is simply to say, well, then I won't do anything. I'll fold my hands. I'll remove myself completely of any kind of work and desire for success like that. He says, so one, so the fool responds to this by folding his hands and he ends up consuming his own flesh. His own flesh. So this is simply the opposite side of the kind of sin that seeks success out of in the uh, out of this envy and rivalry, and this is an opposite kind of pride, it simply removes oneself from any responsibility in the race at all, any responsibility in the world at all, any responsibility to others at all. And you'll see here he's transitioning to that very important reality that we're not to be, it's not about us, it's not about us. So this person, though, chooses to be lazy, and their excuse of wanting to remove themselves from the rivalry and the the oppression that comes from pursuing success out of rivalry, they they use that as an excuse to cover over laziness and slothfulness. Again, it's just another manifestation of pride. You ever think of that? Do you ever think of laziness as a manifestation of pride? It is, actually. It is. It's another evil under the sun. Listen to this. In Proverbs 26, do you see a man who, now remember the context of Proverbs 6 is the spiritual reality of whether somebody fears God or doesn't fear God, right? So the fool is the one who doesn't fear God, the wise person is the one who does fear God. And so he says in verse 12, do you see a wise, a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road and a lion in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. That's part of what he says here. The lazy person, the foolish person, the one who is a sluggard is one who is very proud 
the one who was, who was very consumed with their own, with their own agenda, their, any covering that they can have uh, for themselves to not be responsible, to not be required to, to work hard. And so he said, Here is, here's one example of how wrongly to respond to that. And he says, and not, again, like the one who pursues it, success out of envy, so the one who fails to try at all and is lazy consumes his own flesh. That's a pretty graphic way. One said it's like this. They become cannibals of themselves. The implication is that they will kill themselves by starvation. Since they do not raise anything, they must eat their own flesh. And many examples in Proverbs, of laziness bringing that kind of destruction. But again, it's a spiritual matter. And again, this points us in Solomon's wisdom here is to realize that, that both of those are wrong. Success out of envy or laziness out of a covering for pride and selfishness. The better answer is this. I looked again at verse 6. And one hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. So what is he saying? Simply this, one hand holds rest, one hand holds labor. We hold them both in balance. It's not all to be one or all to be the other. We need to work hard, but we also need to be rest. And what is the ability to rest is to say that I'm not being pursuing success out of rivalry, and I realize I have other responsibilities to others and to God. And so I know when it's proper to rest, and when it's proper to work hard. The being lazy is then, of course, a spiritual matter that leads to practical consequences. That's the point. It's a reality observed through human history. If you want something, you do have to work for it. And so here, I want to just acknowledge the other side of this is that there is that work, but it's the proper motivation for work and the proper balance of work. But we must, we must want things. It's no, it's no virtue to be unambitious. It's not a virtue to be unambitious. It's not a virtue to be unambitious to the point that there's no real effort put into any goal at all. He's not commending that. As a matter of fact, he, he calls it here a kind of foolishness that ultimately will bring one to just a place of want. If you want something, you have to work for it. That's certainly true. That's true in education. It's true in physical work. It's true in marriage. It's true in friendships. It's true in godliness. You discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Godliness doesn't just happen. You have to work for it. You should want to be godly. You should want to, to know the Lord in all of his fullness. Uh, but... And so that's what he's commending here. He's saying what, what is the answer to the kind of oppression is to be content and to be balanced between work and labor. To be balanced between work and labor. And again, this needs to carry over into the church. It needs to carry over into the church. We don't want to be lazy in the Christian life, for sure. We don't want to be pursuing the use of our gifts and by the way, I'm not going to be able to finish. Uh, I thought I was, so we're going we're gonna to stop here. But, but I, let's, let's finish this point out a little bit. 
How does this come over into the church? How is it with us? So the big picture here is how Paul, Solomon is saying that, that, look, oppression exists in the world, all kinds of evils. What are some of the sources of this evil? Success uh, with rivalry driven out of jealousy and envy. Another su- uh, source of kind of, uh, of oppression are those who are lazy and don't take any responsibility for their lives and just allow those things uh, to flourish around them. The answer to both of those is one, to be balanced in life and to work hard but with the motive of striving after the glory of God. And let me just bring this into the church then. Uh, We need to work hard to do the will of God. We need to work hard to use our gifts to the best of our ability and we should want to see them flourish. We should want to see our efforts find fruit and have Again, a a kind of success. It's just that we want them for the glory of God. If we sing and we're a musician, then we should practice to be the best musician we could be. Why? To the glory of God. Not so that we can be better with the person on stage with us and they could be more impressed with us, you know, when they sit down. If you teach, then you should study and work hard to teach. Why? Not so people will admire you more than someone else, but because you have a responsibility to the word of God and before God to be the best teacher that you can be. If you clean, then you should clean to the best of your ability. Why? Because that's to the glory of God, not so that you can be admired. You see where this is going for cleanliness, for how well you do your job. If you serve, whatever it is that you do, uh, we should work hard. Paul said, I worked harder than all of the other apostles. Do you remember him saying that in 1 Corinthians 15? Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. But he said, I worked hard. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm like an athlete who's pursuing a prize, not a perishable prize like those athletes in the Greek games, the, the crown that fades, but one that is an eternal prize and an eternal crown. And we should strive for that. We should labor for that. We should be also on guard that as we're using our gifts within the church, as we're striving to be useful to to the Lord, that we're doing it in a way that brings glory uh, to God. And we should also make sure that we're not being lazy. We should also make sure that we're not being lazy and falling to this other side that says, you know, I see the way that sometimes people are serving and uh, how pride can easily infect me. So I think what I'm going to do is just bow out altogether and just be kind of someone who shows up and goes home. I'm going to just fold my hands, a little rest is, uh, fold my hands. I'm going to sit here and, and be unengaged. And that's just as wrong too. Let me just make this point. Laziness is sin. It's sin to pursue success and work hard because you want to be better than someone else. But the other side is too, if you don't work hard and are lazy, that's also sin. God did not call us to Christ to do nothing and to sit around. He called us to Christ to work. Jesus said... If you desire to follow him, what is it? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. In other words, we should be working as Christians. We should be actively engaged as Christians with the body and saying, how are we contributing to those whom God has called me into fellowship with? And so we should be doing that. Uh, We need to work hard at that. Uh, We need to balance that, of course, with our other responsibilities in life, but, but we shouldn't be, we don't want to be a lazy, a lazy Christian. And again, the issue here isn't, is contentment. It's righteousness with contentment. And the answer is to pursue godliness and to be content with what God has. And this is the greatest gain. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that the greatest gain is what? Godliness when it's accompanied by contentment. 
He'll get into the issue of wealth later in chapter 5, but the point is to be content with what God gives. Work hard, but do it so that you might serve others. Be successful in business or whatever you do or whatever kind of work God has called you to so that he may receive glory or so that you may have the resources to serve others, to be generous, 1 Timothy 6. But one part here, and that's, that is as we take that as we take that mandate, as we're serving one another in the church, as we're serving one another, as God gives us opportunity in the world and we're doing it that God might be glorified, that's how we answer oppression. That's how we answer the hardships that come upon people. That's how we answer the need of the helpless and the poor and the needy. Why? How? Why one? Actively pursuing the opportunities that God gives us, not being lazy, and doing whatever we do is the best of our ability so that we can take whatever success he gives and use it to the service of others. That's the idea. That's the idea. And we alleviate the oppression that necessarily comes in this world. It'll never be total. Jesus says, the poor you always have with you. We're not going to eliminate poverty in this world. We're not going to eliminate suffering. We're not going to eliminate oppression. Only Christ is going to do that when he brings his kingdom. We're not going to eliminate inequity. We're not going to eliminate injustice. But Christians should do their best to alleviate it whenever we can, as we're able, in the way that God enables us to do that. We should do that in our culture, and our society, and we should do that within the church. And when we do that, then we know contentment, the church is built up, the needy are served, and God is glorified. And so Solomon takes us, as he usually does, through a different route to get there. Uh, but that's where we need to end up, and that's where we need to arrive. And ultimately, that's where the instruction that we have here leads us. Well, next week, we're going to look at this, at the end of the second part. And that is this. The, 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 iso- the idea that is uh, kind of hanging in the shadows of verses 1 through 7 is as well of a of oppression in this, uh, that comes from this wrong pursuits, uh, but also of isolation, this idea of going at it alone. And so next week we'll look at the idea of companionship and community, even the idea of friendship and how important that is. And then what ultimately, or how empty it is if we get to the top of power only to find that if that's what, the only reason we pursued it, it's not gonna deliver what it promised. But there is something greater that God delivers to us by promise. And that we'll look at next week. But this week I would just leave you with this. And this this is one. What are you doing to serve in the community of God? In the community of Christ? How are you exercising whatever gifts and opportunities that God gives you to serve, realizing that we are the body of Christ and each person supplies something to the growth of the body? So one is what are you doing? What are you not doing? Maybe, and I have no names, by the way. This is just for you to take on your own. Uh, But what are you not doing that you could be doing simply out of laziness or simply because I don't feel like doing it or it will cost me too much? So maybe ask yourselves those kind of questions. Or maybe ask and say I'm serving and discern your heart. Maybe it's in the world. Maybe it's somewhere else or with a friend. If there's any kind of rivalry, if there's any kind of envy that's motivating it. And then we should all be seeking from the Lord that he would unite our hearts to fear his name and that what we do, we would be doing out of desire to glorify, to glorify him. And so that's, that's what Solomon would leave us with this morning. So let me pray and then we're gonna invite up uh, those who we want to recognize as, 
in membership of Newtown Bible Church and just make uh, some commitments to them and extend to them our love and our friendship and, our, and the right hand of fellowship. So pray with me and then we'll do that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin because even as we lay out these challenges, uh, probably most everybody here at some point can see where we failed in these ways that we have failed to do what we should do because of laziness or we've, we've sought even good things but with the wrong motives and desires and show us where that is in our heart. Help us to be workers that are hard workers for you and for your kingdom. We thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ. And as we've looked at and mentioned before, even in the context of Ecclesiastes, to know that as we do labor and as we do work hard for you, as we do seek that treasure which is in heaven, as we do seek success, but success that you might be glorified and we have a joy in that glory, in that being used by you, that you would keep us on that track of godliness with contentment, of service for your glory, of loving our neighbor, not by neglecting duties, but by putting ourselves aside that we might serve those who have needs. And so is the body of Christ. And so is the glory and the joy of the community of the saints. May we model that. May we know it by your spirit. We thank you. Thank you for how you've worked that among this congregation, which that is in so many ways evident already. But we need to excel still more. And Lord, we continue to pray for those who don't know you who are outside of Christ, who know these things as a, as a distance, as, the, as if looking at them from across the fence, as if seeing them in a, in a faraway land, acknowledging them, knowing they're there, but not embracing Christ and not embracing your will for their life. I pray that you would bring them to conviction and that you'd give them that hope, that reality of spiritual life that comes only to those who have believed, who have turned to trust in you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for each person here. Send us out to do your goodwill. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.